Father, my prayer, our prayer together as a family is that you would now come with the power and the anointing and the help of your Holy Spirit and that your son, your only son, Jesus Christ, would be made much of in this place tonight. I pray for your help. I need your help. And I pray that I would move out of the way and that Christ would be the focal point at this entire during this entire message. Lord, bless us. Bless us with your word, we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a burden tonight. I'm going to confess that right away, I'm going to get right out of the gate. And uh, so it's going to, it may feel that way. So I'm just going to start preaching. <laughs> I have a burden tonight, though, and my burden is that we, as a people of God at Heritage Baptist Church, we know a lot. And I don't mean that in a prideful way. I don't mean that in any sense of boasting. In fact, it kind of scares me that we know so much about God and His glory and the Scriptures and theology and all these things that we know. And it's a burden for me tonight because I... I I asked myself the question, are we connecting the dots between what the rigorous theology that we own and, and the lives that we live? Because the deeper we go in God, in our theology of God, the more, the more biblical we must become in our lives. Our lives just become completely shaped by the theology that we own. And I know, and I confess, and I believe that we as a church, in many ways have become too comfortable. We have just become so comfortable in life. And and I am praying, and I'm sure you are praying, and I'm thankful for our small groups, like that, especially Brother Dave and his small group on prayer, and the things that we have going on here with a focus on prayer. I'm thankful that on Wednesday evenings there seems to be more and more attendance on the Wednesday evening prayer because people are hungry. They're coming ready to pray. They want to pray. They want to see God do great things. And I ask myself the question, when will we know that we are growing as a church spiritually, that we are becoming a spiritual people? And I think that we'll know this when our prayer meetings become more and more full, when we start having spontaneous prayer meetings, people calling other people up saying, we got to pray, I want to pray, let's get together and pray. When humility begins to characterize us as a people, and when people come here and they visit us at this church, the thing that they walk away from is say, you know what? I don't, I don't understand all the theology. I may not have even understood that sermon, but one thing I know is those people love and those people are humble. And, and in worship and evangelism just happens. It just happens because it's the overflow of our heart. And so I have a burden tonight that we not waste our lives, but that we come around the cross and that we embrace it and that that message, which is the heart of the church, drastically impacts who we are as a people of God. And you can grow up in a Christian home, and actually growing up in a Christian home can be very dangerous. So for you young people, I want you to know this. It can be dangerous to grow up in a Christian home. It can be dangerous potentially because Christians, even Christians, can waste their lives. There was a revival meeting that happened, and an old man walked up. This is a man who had been a part of a Southern Baptist church, and and. Throughout his life, he had attended all the revival meetings. And when this particular revival meeting took place, he walked to the front, weeping, this old man, weeping and weeping and weeping. And all he could say was, 
my life. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. My life. And and we get one crack at this life. And if we miss it, it's over. The rivers of our lives are flowing so fast. And my zeal to not waste my life is actually more pronounced today than it has ever been. And I'm young. And this is one of the biggest tragedies in our culture because our culture is spending billions of dollars to get us to waste our lives. They have said, look, you've worked for it, so live. You've worked hard, now live. Fifty years of play and leisure while the world The world, which is totally uncared for, medically, uneducated, filthy water, poverty-stricken slums, unevangelized people, is sinking under the weight of healthy 65-year-old people playing cards and golfing their way into the presence of King Jesus. And you know what? We're going to join them, people of God. We are going to join them unless at this stage of our lives we get dead serious about making some radical decisions and some radical choices about where our treasure is. And tonight, the title of my message is Don't Waste the Gospel, Knowing Why Your Good News is Really Good. Because this evening, I want us to consider the gospel, which is the very heart of Christianity. Because if you do not understand this message, if you do not embrace this message, then your life will be wasted. So when we talk about not wasting the gospel, we have to start with understanding the gospel. Because, of course, you can't waste something that you don't have. And so this evening, I want to make sure first that we know the gospel and that we understand the gospel. And then secondly, that we embrace it. And and if you're a believer tonight, this message is for you. This message is for you because I want you to be stunned all over again at the beauty and the power of of the gospel. You see, because God is in the business of making a name and a people for himself. That is his primary objective. And everything hinges on the gospel because God is making a name and a people for himself through the preaching of the gospel. That's why this message is so critical. Now, I'm not speaking today about a message that you know, that you've heard too well, that you've heard too many times. I'm actually speaking about a message, friends, that we don't know well enough. I believe that. I believe that we don't know the gospel well enough. So my prayer is that as you hear me speak the gospel into your life this evening, um, that you will be amazed all over again, that you will be stirred, even as you sit there in the pew this evening. But you see, one of the problems is, is that the devil is going to do everything he can to stop this message from going forth. He wants us to embrace something other than the gospel. And the devil is quite happy for us to embrace alternatives to the gospel. Now, what I'm about to say is will anger the devil. This will upset the devil because one of his tricks, one of his devices, I want to expose to you. So kids, listen to me carefully also as I share this. Listen to the lie of the devil. Whether you know it or not, for centuries now, the devil has been working overtime to get us to create false gospels. A false theology of God. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden? What happens? The serpent comes and he tempts the woman. And he says, did God really say that? He twists 
the message. And he deceives the woman. And so the devil wants us to write our own theology of God, to come up with our own perspectives of God, a theology centered around what we want, what we desire, what we think God is and should be like. So guess what happens? Without knowing, you and I may end up creating our own form of the gospel. We create our own good news in response to certain other types of pain that are in our life. And as Mark Driscoll has pointed out well, he says, this is how false gospel and false religion always starts. It begins with redefining terms. And for us, typically it begins this way. First, you define for yourself a hell. Now, I'm not talking about the hell that we read in Scripture. I'm talking about our own definition of hell. Of We think of hell as being separated from God in eternal conscious torment, and that's biblical. But we come up with our own concept of hell, and this is how it begins. So for you, hell is being single. Hell is being fat. Hell is being ugly. Hell is being unappreciated. Hell is having no pleasure. Hell is not having a lot of free time. Hell is having a lot of burdens and having to go to work. Hell is not owning your own home. Hell is driving an ugly car. That is your hell. So you define for yourself a hell. This is a hell that you do not want to go to, that you desperately want to escape from. And so what you want is a savior from that hell. And so when you decide you need a savior to get you out of this hell, you need a false functional savior because your hell is false. So you have to create a false functional God. And the false functional God you create is, if I'm lonely, then I need a friend. My friend will be my savior. And if I'm broke, I need money. That's my savior. Or a credit card. And if it's pleasure that I worship, then I need to go find someone or something inappropriate to do to fill me with pleasure. And if I want to have kids, then my kids will be my savior. And that will get me out of a childless hell. So I go out and I buy a new car because that will get me out of vehicular hell. And I get into a new car heaven. And I need to own my own house because owning my own house gets me out of an apartment hell. And here's what it promises. Your Savior will get you out of this hell and get you into a little piece of heaven and then you'll be happy. And friends, this is why we begin to choose idols in our lives. We choose them because we think it'll make us happy. It'll give us some self-worth. It'll make our lives just a little bit more heavenly. And so what we do is we find these false saviors. And then we give our lives, we give our money, we give our energy, we give our time to worshiping these false functional gods. And so I worship my kids. Because kids for me is heaven, because not having kids is hell. And I start working on my house all the time, because my house is a little piece of heaven That gets me out of an apartment hell. Friends, for some of us, what we need to do this evening at the very beginning is to repent of our theology, our false theology of God, our false functional saviors. We need to repent and we need to remember that we are not coming to a false savior tonight. We are coming to a real savior who is saving us from a real hell That we have not imagined, but that God has spoken and says exists.
We are coming to a real Savior. And the gospel is good news precisely because it saves us, not from a false hell, but from a real hell. And it provides a real Savior from a real hell. Now, with that said, I want you to see the real gospel this evening at the backdrop of these false messages. I want to unpack the heart of the gospel with you from Romans chapter 3. And I want you to see why the gospel is really good news. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 3 this evening. Romans chapter 3. If you are one who is helped by outlines, then this evening I'll be following this course of thought in my thinking. Uh, Number one, I will look at the problem of this text. There's a problem here. And the problem is that God is justifying the ungodly. That's a problem. And that's what I'm going to be looking at in the first place. In the second place, I want to see the solution to this problem. Jesus, our substitute. So a problem and a solution. Let's read together Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible... Your friend will pass one to you, or you can share. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, when we speak about the gospel, we speak about the gospel and salvation in the same sentence. But this begs a question tonight, salvation from what? What are we being saved from? Well, if we back up, we see that actually we have a problem. And our problem, friends, is not simply that we are sinners. It's not simply that we are separated from God and need salvation. Our problem is God. Our problem is that God is righteous. Our problem is that God is holy, which means that God is angry with sin. He is angry with sin and he will not hesitate to pour his wrath out upon us for that sin unless somehow that wrath and that anger can be adverted. But the Bible talks about us being saved from his wrath, which begs the question, how Did that happen? I mean, how can a holy God save sinners who deserve to be punished? This is a problem. This creates a massive problem. A holy God letting ungodly, wicked sinners go. I mean, we just read from Romans. If you look back in the verse, it says, God who passed over in his divine forbearance, passed over former sins. I mean, surely these sins are sins worthy of punishment. So the question is, if God is righteous, how in the world can he let the ungodly go free? 
Now, in the Bible, what we see is two truths. In Exodus, it says, Behold, the Lord, the Lord God, the merciful and compassionate one, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. But it says in Romans, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means that sin is not primarily a sin against man, but sin is primarily a crime against God. It's, it's a valuing of something higher than we value God. It's a devaluing of God, and it's, a, and it's a extra valuing of things other than God. It's dishonoring to his name. And so it says in Proverbs 24, 24, maybe you've memorized this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are an abomination to the Lord, including God. It's an abomination for God to simply justify the ungodly. It's unrighteous. So God is just and he will punish the wicked. And God is merciful and he will forgive the, 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 the sinner. So these are the two truths that we have. God is merciful and will forgive and God is just and he will punish sinners. Now, these two truths come together in a most powerful way in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. Numbers 14, 18. Listen to me as I read this text. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will, will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. So do you see the problem? On the one hand, God is loving and merciful and is forgiving the guilty. On the other hand, God is righteous and just and he's punishing the guilty. And this brings us to the heart of this text. Let's read again Romans 3.25. It's speaking of Jesus. Romans 3.25. What does the text say? Speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So the verse says that when God put his son Jesus on the cross, he did this to show his righteousness. That's the purpose, to show his righteousness. So that begs the question, what is the righteousness of God then? Well, God's righteousness is his commitment to uphold what is ultimately right. It is his commitment to uphold the honor and the integrity of his name. God always does what is right. God always is jealous for his name. So when God just passes over sins and he lets sinners go without punishment, that is unrighteous. It's absolutely unrighteous to just pass over sins. It's as though God is saying, dishonoring me doesn't matter. Even though you've offended me and spit in my face, I don't care. But if, if God said that, he would be unrighteous. Because his name does matter. And dishonoring the name of God is a serious sin. Look also at, the, at verse 25. What else does it say? It says that God passed over former sins. Now, when I first read that, I was so confused a few years ago 
when I read this, I, I didn't understand what that meant. And I've had some clarity of thinking on this, and I want to help you with that. What does it mean that he passed over former sins? Well, quite simply, it means he overlooked them. It means he overlooked former sins. It means he does not punish them. Think about King David. I'll give you a biblical example. Second Samuel 12. Here's King David. He's confronted by the prophet, Nathan. And Nathan comes to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And not only had David committed adultery with Bathsheba, actually, he had, he had to cover for his sin, so he ended up murdering. So here's David, blood all over his hands, having just committed this awful sin, not only of adultery, but of murder. And Nathan the prophet comes to him, and he's going to talk man to man, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and he's going to call David out for his sin. And he looks at David and he says to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And God says, why have you despised me? Second Samuel 12, 9 and 10. What happens? David feels the rebuke of Nathan. And in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. But Nathan's response in verse 13 seems utterly ridiculous. Have you read verse 13? Look at verse 13. Nathan's response seems to be ridiculous. He says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that, adultery and murder. And instantly he says, the Lord has put away your sin. So here we see an illustration that God is passing over former sins. He's letting sinners go. Or to say it another way, God is letting the ungodly go free. Which is why Romans 4, 5 says, God justifies the ungodly. He's letting the ungodly go, scot-free. He's passing over all the sins of, of the people, of his people, sins which they did in the past, yesterday, Sins which they did today, sins which we do this morning, sins which we will commit tomorrow. But if he is righteous, the question is, how can he do this? And this brings us to the absolute heart of the gospel. This is the solution. This brings us to the solution. Let's look back at verse 25. This whole message is a message on verse 25. A problem and a solution. Verse 25, let's look back at it, where Paul says Christ was put forward. And what's the purpose? What does the text say? He was put forward first to show his righteousness. The Bible tells us that God put forward his son Jesus so that through his death, he might demonstrate that he is still righteous. You see that? That he is still righteous. Righteous. When God sets Jesus Christ forward on the cross, what he is saying is that my name and my glory really do matter. I still am a righteous God and I will not let sin go unpunished. What God is saying is that my righteousness matters. And even though you think I'm going to let sin go, I will not let sin go unpunished. Someone has to die. Someone has to be punished. And what, and what the height of the gospel is, is that, in fact, your sin and my sin matter so much. 
and that sin has to be punished, that God says, I will crush my own son. That's how serious your sin is. I will crush him. I will crush my son for you, my own son. So what Paul is saying is that when Christ is put forward on the cross, this is showing that God is still righteous. He's still a righteous God. But secondly, it says that when God put Christ forward, he put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Look at verse 26. It says that when Jesus died, God proved two things about himself. Verse 26, that he would be both just and the justifier. That means that through the death of Christ, God is proving that he is righteous while at the same time justifying the ungodly. Is that not one of the most amazing truths that, is, that has ever been articulated? That God is justifying the ungodly and at the same time he is righteous. This is the very heart of of the gospel. This simply cannot happen without Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer. Christ is the answer because he is precisely the, our substitute. Precisely because he is our substitute. Sin has to be punished. And either you and I will bear that sin. Either you and I will bear the full wrath, the full weight of God, or Christ, or we can flee to Christ who took it for us. This is the absolute heart of the gospel. It does not get any more central than this. Christ our punishment. Christ our substitute. Christ our wrath bearer. Christ standing in our place. This, my friends, this is substitutionary atonement. And when this message is denied, you don't have a church. If we lose this message, we don't have a church. We might as well pack it all up and just head out. And join a cult or just become wickedly immoral. Because this is the heart of, the, of, of this church. Without this message, we do not exist. This is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And I want to close this evening by describing us the scene of the cross. And I want you to feel a measure of what it must have been for Christ to have taken your place. We really are on holy ground here. I hope you realize that. Uh, do walk carefully here. Do, do not approach this scene casually. In the garden, we find Jesus deeply distressed and troubled. In fact, the text says in Matthew 26 that he is overwhelmed to sorrow. So great, so great that it is no exaggeration for him to say, I'm close to death. At this moment in the garden, our Savior is aware. He is all too keenly aware, like never before, that He is facing not just His own death. No, He is brought face to face with the horrific reality 
of bearing our sins and becoming the object of the Father's full and furious wrath against our sin. And this prospect is so horrific. It is so horrific that he cannot remain standing. Our Savior cannot remain standing. And the text says he fell to the ground. Matthew tells us he falls to the ground and he can no longer stand. He's experiencing actually the very shutting down of his body. His physical body is actually shutting down. He falls to the ground under the burden of our sin, under the burden of having to bear the full wrath and weight of his father's fury against our sin. And when he prays, this is what he prays. Father, Father, if it is possible, would you please remove this cup from me? He is anticipating the ultimate agony of Calvary. He is momentarily thinking, if there is a way to avoid such an agony, if there is any way to avoid this horror, my Father, my my loving Father can provide a way. And so he appeals to God. And don't doubt, friends, for a moment that if there was another way, don't doubt for a minute that if there was an alternative, if there was any other way, if there was any other means that God the Father would have provided it for His Son. If there was any other means possible, He would have provided it for His Son, whom He loves. So Jesus prays. you please let this cup pass? And what does he hear in response? Silence. Silence. The silence of this text is, is deafening. It's breathtaking silence. Nothing. He's silent. Why? Why? There is only one way to resolve God's anger towards us. And to reconcile us to himself. And so when I'm asked by anyone who killed Jesus, you know what I'm going to say? I did it. I did it. It was my sin that killed him. That was the killer. It was our sin. It was my sin that did this to him. It was my sin that put him put him there this was our fault and there's a part of me that can imagine actually walking into the garden and seeing jesus in that moment in that moment and wanting to scream out and say why why jesus why are you doing this you're an innocent man you're an innocent man why are you doing this especially for me why and jesus would humbly and softly and and look at look at us and he would say because of your sin Because of your sin, I am required to be. I'm required to do this. This is how serious your sin is. It's so serious. This is how serious your sin is. I have to do this. I must go forward with this. I must do this. And so our sin is heaped upon him. And Jesus hangs between the earth And heaven, filthy with human discharge. On the outside, 
and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. And this is what it must have been like to some degree for, the, for Jesus to be our substitute. For him, for Jesus, to feel this from the Father. We think of the gospel and, and we think of the intensity of the gospel and the message. And so often when you go to churches, you hear people, they say things like, well, you know, the, the, the nail piercings, it must have hurt so bad. And, and Jesus being there and he died the worst death and he was crucified and he was a bloody mess and it was just awful. And all that is true, people of God. All that is true. But we know something deeper, don't we? We know that the worst agony of the cross is the fact that he is separated from God. That he is absolutely separated from the Father. And that God the Father turns his face away from his own Son. This is what it must have been like for Jesus to be our substitute. And I want to describe that to you. I want you to feel right now in in your seat as you are there. I want you to feel. I want you to imagine this scene respectfully and carefully. I want you to think of this. I want you to think of Jesus hanging on the cross, and this is what God the Father is saying to him as our substitute. The Father speaks to him and says, Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient. You are self-righteous, consumed with yourself, and puffed up with selfish ambitions. You rob me of my glory. You worship what is inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are a greedy, lazy, gluttonous, slanderer and gossip. You're a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography. You fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and you worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you are given up to your passions, your homosexual passions, it dressing immodestly, lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother. You murder him with bullets firing out of your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor. You deal slaves. You ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put on a cloak of outward piety, but inside you are filled with dead man's bones. You hypocrite. You lukewarm. You're easily enticed by the world. You covet and cannot have, so you murder. You're filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin. You are too proud to even call it sin. You are never slow to speak. You have a sharp, razor-like tongue that lashes and cuts with criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You're a false prophet leading people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You're a betrayer who stirs up division and factions. You're a drunkard and a thief. You're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive wife. You are lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. The list of your sins goes on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. And I'm filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks. He drinks for hours. 
He drowns every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. The father can can no longer look at his beloved son, his heart's treasure. And he turns his face away from his son and he forsakes him. My dear friends. This is what Jesus has done for you and me. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the gospel, and if this fails to move you, there is something seriously wrong. And you need to repent, and you say, Jonathan, I am so far from God right now. I feel so far, I feel so far away, I feel so cold in my heart. I know. I know. Trust me, I know. But tonight can be a night of repentance for you, a night of brokenness in the presence of God. It can be a turning point. And for some of us, that needs to happen. We dare not walk out of here. We can't do that. That's wrong. It's wicked for us to walk out of here unchanged by this message. Wicked. Wicked. It's that kind of sin that Jesus had to pay for. People of God. What a Savior. What a Savior. What a Savior. Friends, this message is your hope. This message is your life. This message is everything you need. Know it. Embrace it. And don't waste it. Because this is your good news. Kids, if you're here 
Don't play, don't play with this message. Don't, don't play games with this message. Don't walk out of here assuming that you'll hear it again, assuming that you'll have another opportunity. Do you realize that God crushed his son to give you an opportunity to be saved from the wrath of God? Please don't walk out of here. God is calling you. Some of you, God is speaking directly into your hearts. And this is the night. This needs to be the night of some of your conversions to Christ. Friends, other people who are here, husbands, wives, whatever it is, let's get serious about God. Let's get serious about this message. Let's come together around this message. Let's celebrate this message. This message must drastically affect our lives. We, 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 should be, we should be of all people the most radically God-centered people if we understand the depth of this message. We must be absolutely God-saturated people. Oh, how I pray that God's Spirit would just come and just consume us as a church. He would set us on fire for God. I just think we need to do a lot more meditating on this message until we are just so ravished and broken by the beauty and the glory and the power of this message. It's beautiful. This is the gospel. This is why we exist. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to worship you. We want to stop and to reflect on your greatness, on your glory, on, on all that you have accomplished on the cross for us. Oh, Father, please, Father, please forgive us as a church, as a people of God, as husbands, as wives, as fathers and mothers, as children. Please forgive us for our foolishness, our trampling over this message. Lord, as we just walk through our day so comfortably, so casually, at times, forgetting this message. I don't know, falling into some form of, of, of self-righteousness, undermining the beauty of the work of Christ, or, 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 or becoming so licentious and wicked in our freedoms that we abuse the gospel God, let us be a radically holy, God-saturated people. Let Heritage Baptist Church be set on fire with your spirit. Father, we need help. We need great help. We need conviction. We need repentance. We need help. We need all of these things. And we pray that you would give it to us. God, be gracious to us. Oh, Lord, let this message sink. Let it sink deep into our hearts. You're worthy. You're worthy of that. You're worthy, God. You're worthy. Father, forgive me. I I feel so um, amazed that even this message does not move me further myself. God, it's wickedness. It's just, we've got to be, Lord, we have got to embrace this Lord, and we need your help and your power and your strength. 
Thank you for mercy, God. And now we pray that you would apply that to us. Lord, let us together grab arms, link arms, and join each other in the cause of fighting for Christ, fighting to own these things, and to celebrate these things, and to love these things. Thank you for this night. Thank you for your word and your spirit. In your precious name do we pray. Amen.